investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 54 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I am your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is February 14th, 2020, so happy Valentine's Day to all the investors, traders, and speculators out there. Have a few interesting topics to chat about this week. Uh, Number one, T-Mobile Sprint. Is this deal finally going to get done after nearly two years in limbo? A judge approved the merger, which sent the stocks of both companies skyrocketing. The US FTC cracks down on M&A by the largest tech companies. Is this going to slow down deal activity? Simon announces the acquisition of Taubman in a mega mall merger. Why are they betting big on shopping malls? And lastly, we're going to chat about the next frontier in investment management, which is alpha plus beta. After nearly two years of uncertainty, a U.S. district judge finally approved the $59 billion merger of the third and fourth largest U.S. wireless carriers, T-Mobile and Sprint. This occurs after years of regulatory hostility in the Obama administration, which blocked when these companies previously tried to merge. They've been trying to get together for at least half a dozen years, if not more. I remember back in 2013, we had a position in T-Mobile just based off the merger speculation because at the time, Sprint was actually larger than T-Mobile. But over the years, uh, Sprint uh, declined markedly and T-Mobile just uh, kicked butt in that market. And now T-Mobile's significantly larger and it looks like they're actually going to get this done and this deal over the finish line. A little bit of additional background here on this specific deal. So the DOJ and FCC had already approved the merger. And this involved a side deal with Dish Network in which Dish would buy uh, some assets from the pro forma entity to create another fourth wireless competitor because this deal with T-Mobile and Sprint combining the third and the fourth creates uh, effectively a strong third player uh, that will compete against AT&T and Verizon. So the antitrust regulators got on side with this deal citing uh, lowered anti-competitive effects just due due to Dish Network's involvement and the build-out of a new uh, fourth competitor in that space. However, after the DOG and FCC approved the deal, multiple states came in and sued to block the deal, arguing that it is anti-competitive and will raise prices for customers. And this was basically unprecedented in terms of the state attorneys general coming in and trying to get the deal blocked after federal antitrust regulators already approved it. So a lot of major implications for this and ultimately the judge shutting down the state AG's gambit to have this deal blocked. And what the judge said, he has been unpersuaded by the state's arguments that T-Mobile would act anti-competitively following the merger, predicting that the combined company would be, quote, chomping to take on its new market peers and rivals in head-on competition. And that's really framing how T-Mobile has just attacked this market over the past 10 years under the leadership of CEO John Ledger 
He's basically just uh, crushed his competitors and gotten T-Mobile from a weak fourth place competitor. Now this pro forma entity will be uh, gunning for number one. The other major aspect coming into play on this deal was Sprint, which is the current fourth place player in the market. They're actually unlikely to survive as an independent competitive player. They've been on the decline for many, many years. Not just that, but uh, losing customers and a massively leveraged balance sheet. I saw estimates as high as a, that if this deal fell apart, they need a bailout of 10 to $12 billion, which uh, could be hard to come by. Nonetheless, on this news, uh, shareholders loving this, T-Mobile gaining 14%, Sprint surging over 80%, and clearly the market got this one wrong. Um, I talked to many uh, professional deal guys and uh, many thought that this was highly likely to get blocked and that the states would be successful in this merger challenge. I heard estimates of, you know, 20 to 30% chance of success that it would actually go the way of the uh, companies. My thoughts, I always had a coin flip, kind of 50% odds on it, but definitely happy to see it go through. It re removes a lot of uh, uncertainty in terms of having state AGs come out of nowhere to try to block deals after receiving federal approval. So it's certainly better for merger, merger arbitragers, certainly. But I believe the biggest winner here, besides those involved in T-Mobile and Sprint, is perhaps uh, SoftBank, Japan SoftBank, which surged as much as 13%, given that they are huge shareholders of Sprint. Absolutely. And I mean, this is not quite a done deal yet, as uh, I think something to discuss now would be what the potential is for a revision of the uh, terms for consideration offered to Sprint. Now, it's been reported that Deutsche Telekom, uh, which is the majority owner of T-Mobile at about 60%, wants the consideration cut. As you had mentioned, Sprint's business has been deteriorating, um, especially over the deal cycle. This deal cycle is has been nearly two years. It was announced in April 2018. Absolutely, just leaving a lot of room for deterioration in their un underlying business model. Now, really, it pits them against SoftBank, which, as you had mentioned, is Sprint's controlling shareholder. Now, they, you, it would indicate that Deutsche Telekom does have some leverage. As you had mentioned, um, Sprint would require an estimate of a $10 billion capital injection. And it's pretty unlikely that SoftBank is too keen to provide that type of financing. And arranging for that type of financing with external parties may at, come at a pretty high cost in terms of dilution um, and very high interest rates if they pursue debt. But under the original term, Sprint shareholders would own about 30% of the pro form entity and Deutsche Telekom just really wants to bring that down. So, you know, in, in terms of the actual merger docs itself, the drop dead date was November 20, in November 2019. So T-Mobile is technically free to walk away. So they can use that somewhat as leverage, but in reality, it, it's probably viewed as a like analysts are saying that it's a very low probability that T-Mobile would be interested in walking away at this point in time, both from the t amount of resources that they've allocated to the this merger defense, but as well as the strategic nature of the deal in wanting the Sprint Spectrum assets, um, which are very important for them looking at 5G. And so 
if if there is a cut, Julia, do you, what 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 kind of cut do you foresee uh, in this deal if they are able to get a little bit of a consideration price cut? Yeah, it's a really good question, and certainly the market is pricing in some a bit of a price cut here. I wanted to back it up a little bit. You mentioned in the definitive merger agreement, the so-called outside date. They blew through this because this deal cycle has been much much longer than expected. They initially guided to I believe a mid 2019 closing, so we're way past the outside date, leaving T-Mobile with the advantageous position of being able to threaten to walk away, able to pressure uh, Sprint and SoftBank uh, into getting more advantageous terms. Uh, but clearly, T-Mobile wants and needs this deal. You can see by the price action, their shares rallying 14%. There's just exceptional amount of synergies available here. I believe the estimates are somewhat around 5 billion annual cost and capital synergies with present value in the 20 to 30 billion dollar range. So just massive, massive, uh, um, just favorable deal uh, for both companies here, just getting together and, and harvest, harvesting those synergies. Not only that, but putting them in a much better competitive position to capitalize on this new 5G technology, which is really where the industry is going. Now, as for price cut, T-Mobile did publicly talk about uh, cutting that back. So the market certainly is expecting one here. The merger spread seems to be pricing in a 10 to 15% discount, a 10 to 15% cut to the current merger terms uh, that will be advantageous to T-Mobile. And so we'll monitor that, see what happens there. But I think it's highly likely that the deal closes at revised terms, uh, revised terms downward, more favorable for T-Mobile. And Sprint is gonna have to take a bit of a hit here, but it's certainly better than walking away from the deal and being left to potentially uh, declare bankruptcy because they might be insolvent. And one, one other thing that I did want to bring up was um, after after the judgment, um, there, the attorney generals of California and New York both left open the possibility that they would appeal. La lastly, what what do you think the probability of them doing so would be in this situation? I think it's pretty unlikely, and if they are to challenge it, then that is uh, very unlikely to be successful. I mean, they already have egg on their face, given that uh, they got ruled against, and really an unprecedented gambit that, uh, in my opinion, was really out of left field. The federal regulators criticized them pretty significantly just um, due to this unprecedented move, and it, it had potential major implications on all uh, M&A if, uh, if a deal gets federal blessing and then you have all these different state AGs coming after it, um, you know, things could go a bit crazy. So it's great that the state's lost here, great for M&A, great for uh, the, um, you know, merger arbitrage business, certainly. So we'll monitor this one, but it looks like uh, it's going to cross the finish line here. Antitrust officials from the Federal Trade Commission announced a new wave of scrutiny of big tech's acquisition activities. Now, what happened here is the FTC issued orders to Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple, all the big tech companies, to obtain information regarding acquisitions they've closed over the past decade. 
Which is, this is really just a significant undertaking to get all this information because these companies are just acquisition machines. Uh, for example, I got some stats here. Last year, these five companies spent over $7 billion on acquisitions compared to $29 billion in 2016 on deals. They've spent an average of about $3.4 billion a year on sub $1 billion acquisitions over the past five years. Another frame of reference is these five companies have done a total of 767 acquisitions since the late 80s. Google, 235 acquisitions. Apple, 112. Amazon, 101. Facebook, 82 and Microsoft at 237. To give you just another example of um, you know, the acquisitive nature of these companies, between 2010 and 2011, Google was buying a company every week. In May 2019, Tim Cook, Apple CEO, stated that his company was acquiring a company every two or three weeks. A few examples of some large deals that these companies have done. Google did a nearly 13 billion acquisition of Motorola. Apple did a 3 billion acquisition of Beats. Amazon did a nearly 14 billion acquisition of Whole Foods, which of course wasn't a technology deal. Facebook buying WhatsApp for 19 billion and Microsoft buying LinkedIn for 26.2 billion. Now, this investigation by the FTC isn't focused on these large jumbo deals. They're really focused on the deals that were too small to get regular regulatory scrutiny and the deals in which there's this emerging technology which is potentially threatening to these companies. So they execute a strategy called buy and kill, where they go and buy the startup just to kill it such that it doesn't threaten their own market. Really just trying to eliminate new competitors by acquiring them prior to them attaining any sort of size within the market. Now the FTC's move, which will probably involve the review of hundreds upon hundreds of deals, this really comes amidst widespread criticism that antitrust officials have been too permissive in allowing tech giants to buy rivals, which has really just strengthened their dominance. One example that's often talked about is Facebook's acquisition of Instagram, and now they're completely dominant in the social networking space. I mean, there's practically zero competition, perhaps a Snapchat, which of course Facebook has tried to buy. They're really just trying to get that entire market uh, under their control. Now this FTC investigation is focused on small deals and by small deals, these are largely defined as sub $100 million, i.e. the ones that weren't previously reported to the regulators. So it's a real interesting situation with big implications in terms of number one, tech M&A, and number two, potential uh, exits for budding startups. Absolutely, and really it comes down to potentially increasing the scope of the Hart-Scott-Rodino uh, HSR Act is what it would basically do. And just to touch quickly on the Instagram example with Facebook is Yes, Instagram has become a massive success in terms of advertising, but really like that was them plugging into the Facebook advertising platform that Facebook had already built. So 
to look at it now and say, you know, that they, they acquired this and there's less competition. Well, I mean, Instagram would have had to build out that entire infrastructure, which is not really an easy task. Um, but really, I just want to look at this from a founder perspective. As you, as you mentioned, this does limit the exit options as a founder, which is an, a very risky proposition, you know, launching a tech startup. Um, but I think it's really important to distinguish between innovative technology and a business model, as you can have innovative technology without a viable business model. Uh, you know, creating technology is difficult, but creating and executing the, the viability of that business model is just as difficult. Basically, you after you have the technology aspect, you've already come through with that innovative technology, uh, you have to find a way to acquire customers and users efficiently and then monetize those customers and unit users, which ends up in a business with favorable unit economics. Well, and the thing is, a lot of these acquisitions is these large tech companies buying perhaps a feature to integrate into their key product. So not necessarily a standalone business, but something that they can incorporate as a small portion of their current product suite. Absolutely, a feature that could have a very flawed business model, but yet still does have value. Um, and so with that in mind, you know, there is a pretty solid case that can be made that without the option of being able to exit to these large tech companies, that there would be a lot less investment into risky technologies. Uh, the, the, blog, the tech blog, Stratechery, lays out a pretty solid rationale for this. Um, but as well, I mean, this is a situation where typically these tech, these founders are bought out at a significant premium. Um, it allows them to take risk off the table and in a situation where the execution aspect is far from a uh, predetermined outcome. And not only that, but you know, if you get bought by Facebook or Apple or Google or whoever it is, one of these large tech companies, you now have tremendous resources behind your business plan in terms of building out that target market. Absolutely. And I would just like to highlight as well that for the most part, the critics, the most vocal critics I've seen of uh, tech tech companies and these aqua hires, for the most part- By aqua hire, you mean buying a company in order to get the team, not necessarily the technology. Yes, as engineering talent is in high demand in Silicon Valley. Um, but what I would mention, yeah, is that these vocal critics are not founders themselves, but for the most part, I've, I've seen a couple of VCs mention this, but for the most part, it is academics and economists at think tanks that really have no skin in the game. And so the fact that you're not hearing a lot of outcry from founders for these types of deals implies that, you know, this really may not be as well thought out by these academics and think tank economists as they, as they may lead you to believe. The net result? Well, this can lead to enforcement actions from the FTC on deals they do find problematic. However, this does present its own issues because say you acquired a company five years ago, fully integrated it, how do you go on and unwind that deal if those 
two companies already kind of melded together. The other major implication is a potential slowdown in tech M&A. This is largely in the private space. These companies don't acquire a ton of other public companies, so not a ton of applica applications for um, you know public company merger arbitragers. However, they do acquire the odd public company right now. Obviously, Google trying to buy Fitbit, which um, some regulatory concern is involved with that one. But we'll see how this situation plays out. Uh, no doubt it will lead to at least a temporary uh, freeze or at least a cooling of tech M&A. Mall owner Simon Property Group announced that it's acquiring rival Taubman Centers in a $3.6 billion deal. What Taubman does is they own 26 super regional shopping centers in the US and Asia. Now this is a friendly deal, all cash struck at 52.50 per share. Now this was a premium of nearly 52%, which is significantly higher than the average premiums we see of roughly 25%. I should indicate that Taubman stock was uh, heavily shorted. Sentiment within the mall space is pretty bad. So I think the stock was near a 50 52 week low and uh, it was declining pretty rapidly um, so that does make the premium seem you know higher than typical and you gotta ask why the market was so down on these companies well it's it's really easy it's the e-commerce Amazon effect that is really putting pressure on mall landlords as retailers and department stores are really shrinking their bricks and mortar footprints the other interesting aspect of this deal is if we go back to 2002, Simon made an unsu unsuccessful attempt to purchase Taubman back then at 18 bucks per share. So 18 years later and the price goes from 18 to 52.50. From a strategic rationale standpoint, I find it interesting because Simon now is levering up, buying another mall company, uh, trying to gain scale when many of their competitors, their strategies really stand in stark contrast to what Simon's doing because the competitors are more so focused on shedding assets, reducing debt and reducing exposure to traditional malls. What are your thoughts on the strategic rationale here? Yeah, in terms of the aggressive nature of this transaction, it really speaks to um, you know the strong nature of Simon's uh, cash flows and their solid balance sheet. I mean, right now, it looks like they do have a pretty significant um, cost of capital advantage relative to their other, to these other players which gives them a leg up in any sort of acquisition, looking to do acquisitions such as this. Um, you know, it is a seemingly nice premium uh, for Tobman shareholders at 51%, um, although the REIT was down 43% in the year leading up uh, to January 31st. So, you know, on paper a nice premium, but in reality, not that nice. Um, you know, not really too much else to say on the deal. Uh, I, I mean, in terms of the actual retail landscape for mall owners, um, we've we've talked about on the podcast before how it is a very difficult landscape. But it has, but that difficult landscape really has brought about some interesting and unique moves in the space as well. As a couple of weeks ago, uh, Simons announced a different deal um, where they were buying a tenant 
uh, Forever 21 out of bankruptcy. Now this was for $81 million, so a lot smaller deal, but it was done in conjunction with uh, Forever 21's other largest land landlord uh, being Brookfield Property Partners. So really trying to integrate uh, the tenants and landlords in a situation where the tenant is quite distressed and they likely want to keep the cash flow of that rent uh, coming through into their REIT. Yeah, and that's the thing about real estate. It's really a cash flow game. And I wanted to touch on valuation. Now, this deal was done at a 6.2% cap rate. And what a capitalization rate in real estate means, it's basically defined as the net operating income divided by the purchase price. So 6.2% is basically the cash flow yield of the Taubman asset. You compare that to uh, how Simon funded the deal. They did that by raising 3.5 billion in senior notes at rates between 2% and 3.25%. So basically Simon can earn that spread between the 6.2% cap rate and the roughly 3% interest rate, which is really, you know, the, uh, highlights the strategic rationale here. Uh, from a merger arbitrage, merger arbitrage perspective, um, this deal is currently yielding 3.4% on an annualized basis. This is an implied chance of success of 96%. I should note that this does come with a 45-day go-shop provision. However, overbid here is pretty unlikely in my opinion, and the market's not really pricing in it, in it that at all with the merger yield at 3.4% uh, positive. Sometimes when uh, the market's speculating on the go shop provision, a deal could even trade through the terms, i.e. a negative yield. But this one, positive 3.4%. So decent one to look at if you are an arbitrageur and an interesting mega mall merger. Put out a blog post this week titled Alpha Plus Beta, the next frontier in investment management. So we're super bullish on the strategy. We love it. I wanted to start off by defining what we mean by Alpha Plus Beta. Alpha Plus Beta refers to a strategy that combines the index returns, beta, with a long, short, multi-factor overlay portfolio, being the alpha component. What makes this strategy great conceptually is it combines two major psychological forces to the benefit of investors. Now, the beta component of the strategy tracks the broad market index. By that, we mean the S&P 500 in the US, or if it's a Canadian alpha plus beta strategy, the TSX 60 up north. So the strategy's return exhibits a reasonable correlation of the broad market index. Now this is important because it allows investors to stick with the strategy long-term by eliminating the psychological challenges that accompany strategies that move too differently from the index, i.e. the index is up 30% last year and your strategy's down. Many people have a tough time stomaching that irrespective of long-term performance. Now, number two, the alpha component as represented by a long, short, multi-factor overlay portfolio not only adds long-term upside given the overweighting of securities with the highest expected return, but mitigates downside risk by shorting securities with the lowest expected return. This provides investors with additional performance along with risk mitigation characteristics. Now, I wanted to chat about how we describe this long, short, multi-factor overlay portfolio. So our multi-factor model looks at uh, a number of factors as indicated by the multi-factor nature. So we like to look at uh, value, quality, price momentum, operating momentum, and trend. And each month we rebalance the portfolio based off these five factors 
And from that, we pick uh, the long overlay portfolio from the top decile of this multi-factor ranking and the short portfolio from the bottom multi-factor decile. So top 10% of ranked stocks will go long and the bottom 10% will go short. The reason we're doing this is basically systematizing what a human portfolio manager would do, but making it unbiased, systematic in nature, such that you know, you're not swayed by any sort of biases, etc. Basically, what it's doing is going long, high-quality stocks with attractive valuations, good price momentum, solid operating momentum, and a good share price trend, and we're shorting the complete opposite. So how we like to implement alpha plus beta is as follows. So it's 100% index exposure. For example, in the US, that would be 100% allocated to the S&P 500. Then on top of that, 50% exposure to the long multi-factor overlay, plus 50% exposure to the short multi-factor overlay. And to give you some numbers behind the results of this uh, historical 20-year simulation of this strategy, is over the past 20 years, the S&P 500 has compounded at 6.1% annualized. Compare that to alpha plus beta, which did over double. 13.6% annualized, which is great. However, what makes it even better is that it did it with lower correlation, uh, or sorry, lower standard deviation or volatility of returns. Alpha plus beta had a standard deviation of 18.3%, while the index had 18.8%. And if we look at that on a risk adjusted basis, return per unit of risk, alpha plus beta had uh, nearly threefold the performance of the S&P 500. The other thing that's great about this is that alpha plus beta has relatively high correlation to the S&P 500, which indicates that it does a pretty good job of tracking the daily movements in the S&P 500. Again, reinforcing that concept that investors are more likely to stick with something if it's tracking the underlying index so you don't suffer that fear of missing out or, or envy that your neighbor's getting rich when your portfolio is stuck in the mud. The other thing is alpha plus beta does exhibit or it has exhibited more consistent returns. For example, over the past 20 years, alpha plus beta was positive in 17 of those years while the S&P 500 was in positive in only 15 of those years. I should mention alpha plus beta in the US, outperformed the S&P 500 in 15 of the past 20 years. I wanted to touch on one other aspect, the notion of risk mitigation and downside protection. Now, Alpha Plus Beta in the US had upside participation of nearly 90% versus downside participation of only 81.2%. So you do get some risk mitigation to the downside, which investors always like, especially in a bear market. Looking at alpha plus beta in Canada, it's even better. 17.4% annualized over the past 20 years versus 6.3% annualized for the TSX 60. Also, alpha plus beta had a lower standard deviation or lower risk than the index at 16.9% versus the TSX 60 at nearly 18%. This leads to a sharp ratio or return per unit of risk of north of one for the Alpha Plus Beta Canada strategy compared to 0.35 for the TSX 60. Again, Alpha Plus Beta highly correlated with the TSX 60 in Canada, nearly 0.9, indicating very good tracking 
of the index's daily performance. And lastly, just covering some consistency measures. Canadian Alpha plus Beta, positive 18 of 20 years, so only 10% of the years were down years, beating the index, which was positive in 16 of the years from an upside downside participation perspective, Alpha Plus Beta Canada having an upside participation of 88.2% with downside participation of only 76.4%. So just really highlighting some of the risk mitigation measures of Alpha Plus Beta, which is really one of the key selling features. So you do see that long-term performance while tracking the market really well, so you don't kind of feel left out. So it tracks the market action with some outperformance and risk mitigation, plus slightly lower volatility levels. So what's not to like? Yeah, so just to drill down it here a bit, what do you think are the reasons for this strategy's relative outperformance in Canada versus the US? Well, we don't know for sure, but my thesis is that multi-factor investing works better in Canada because it's uh, less practiced here. Uh, Far fewer hedge fund firms would be operating those types of strategies as they do in the U.S. because the U.S. is by far the most competitive market. So I think that largely boils down to uh, lower competitive dynamics in Canada. One thing that I should mention is in terms of access to these strategies of Alpha Plus Beta, we do offer a Canadian Alpha Plus Beta strategy the Accelerate Enhanced Canadian Benchmark Alternative Fund, trading as ATSX on the Canadian Stock Exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange. If you want access to that in it, it's really functioning as we indicate in this blog post, so 100% long the index, plus a 50 long, 50 short multi-factor overlay portfolio meant to generate all those uh, key qualities of this alpha plus beta strategy. So that number one, they're tracking the index reasonably well, but aiming for higher annualized returns with market in line or slightly lower volatility and that downside risk mitigation. So that summarizes our thoughts on Alpha Plus Beta, certainly a strategy that we think is worthwhile taking a look at. And that's it, folks, for episode 54 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you liked it, be sure to leave us a review. You can always check out additional episodes on absolutereturnpodcast.com. Before I close out, I should mention, uh, since we did talk about a couple stocks in which we do hold a position, just for disclosure compliance purposes, we are long of Apple and Microsoft shares. So we got to uh, let everyone know and disclose that. Um, In addition, I'd like to encourage you to follow us on Twitter. Your handle is M underscore Kesslering. You can find me at the People's Hedge Fund Manager. It's at Julian Klamochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. And until next week, wish you all the best in your trading, investing, and speculating. But until then, uh, we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast 
are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.